You're listening to the Inside Intercom podcast. Intercom, making internet business personal at scale. Learn more at intercom.com. I'm Adam Rissman, Content Marketing Manager at Intercom. Welcome to the Inside Intercom podcast, a show all about learning how to build better products and businesses through conversations with leaders in the worlds of design, product management, startups, marketing, and more. Today, we're bringing you a recent chat between myself and Aaron Walter. Aaron's most widely known for the eight plus years he spent leading experience design at MailChimp. His classic book, Designing for Emotion, just hit its fifth publishing anniversary, but its principles are more valid today than ever before. And Aaron's applied them through advising companies and organizations that range from American Express and Typeform to, yes, the White House. Most recently, Aaron joined Envision, a prototyping, collaboration, and workflow platform for designers, as VP of Design Education, where he's developing best practices to guide the software industry. In our conversation, Aaron explains why growing design teams should hire people, not skills. Just stop for a minute and think of... If you've fired a person or you've known people in your organization that have been fired, was it because their HTML wasn't good or you know their designs weren't up to par? Maybe, but most of the time, it's the soft skills that get people booted. The importance of design values on cross-functional teams. Engineers have certain values, very quantitative values of like how many bugs uh, were produced in this last release. What's the time to ship? These are not necessarily the values that should guide design. Design is qualitative, so designers need those values to guide them. And how to design for emotion. Software, we're not dealing with material goods, but we are dealing with the experience, creating a user experience that's not just about, I got my work done, but did that feel good to get my work done? Do I want to go back here? Do I want to tell friends about this? You know, all of these things are really powerful if we stop and, and carefully consider connecting with emotion, not just, you know, the quantitative things. Aaron gives us a window into building better design teams who ultimately can design better experiences. And with that, let's hop into the studio. Aaron, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. So I believe most of our listeners will know you through the UX work and incredible team you built over the years at MailChimp, and we'll get to that shortly. But to get started, your title at Envision is certainly an intriguing one. What does that entail exactly, and what excited you enough about that opportunity to make the jump earlier this year? Yeah, so VP of Design Education is is a, is a pretty unique thing for a company in our industry, in the software industry. Uh, but because we make software for designers, we and it's specifically focused on design, we want to see design succeed throughout our industry. And we definitely see a, a big trend happening right now that our tools are starting to change the way that we design, helping our medium become a lot more sophisticated. And we see consumers becoming a lot more sophisticated in how they use software that, you know, everybody's got a phone, everyone's got, you know, an iPad, a laptop, we're connected all the time. And, you know, it used to be that we, we would buy these books, iOS for dummies or word for dummies, because, right. you know, we, we were, we were dummies. We weren't very sophisticated with software, but now software is in every aspect of our life. And we know what a good experience is and what a bad experience is. And uh, we vote with our home screens on, on what we're going to use. And we see a lot of big companies. We see companies like IBM, which is a, this you know Fortune 10 company. It's, it's huge. They've got tens of thousands of employees around the world hiring something like 2,000 designers. Um, 
So they're investing heavily in design. We see Google, which is a company that's really prided itself on its engineering prowess, is transformed into a design-focused company. Um, and we see this happening in Salesforce, uh, so many other companies where design is becoming a high priority. Uh, because consumers, they, they know what a good experience is. And that's what we're selling now. It's not a feature matrix. It's the experience. So um, our tools and the environment for the software, it's really changing the way we work. So to go back to your original question, why is design education important? Well, at Envision, we're not just selling the platform that where people design and collaborate on design, but we're also helping designers and all the teams that they collaborate with from executives and engineers and product managers uh, to lawyers and uh, you know support teams. All those people come together around design. We want to see design elevate across our industry. And that's a big part of what my team is doing is helping companies learn how to do design better. That's really interesting. And it sounds like to me, it's, it's almost a melding of two previous careers of yours, your time leading the team at MailChimp, and then also the time you actually spent in academia as a design professor prior to that. So there's a bit of a debate in the design industry around certification and degrees. I know Jared Spool, who you're well acquainted with, um, who just launched Center Center earlier this year, has been really vocal about the need that field experience be just as balanced as, as academic learning. In your time leaving uh, academia in the, in the classic sense, you're sort of participating in a new way. Has it been slow to, to catch up to technology? Like, why are we seeing this imbalance there? I think there's always going to be a bit of imbalance with academia because, you know, it's a medium that is slow to change, and that's one of its virtues. But from where we stand in technology and design, we change so fast, and we see that as our virtue. Depending on where you stand, each virtue can become a vice. But academia, it just can't keep up with how fast technology is changing, and that's okay. But it's really good at delivering this connected liberal arts education where students get the perspective of, you know, on a lot of different domains and different subjects. And that's a, an important part of feeding creativity is that creativity is about connecting the disconnected, finding new ideas by, by exploring different territory. So... You know, I, I think that academia is still very important and very relevant. I think it's important to study philosophy and religion and mathematics and biology and art. Like all these things, they feel unrelated to what we're doing. But over the years, I've hired so many people that have those sorts of backgrounds. They didn't necessarily have a technology background or even a design background, but they were able to level up on those skills to augment a really solid foundation in, in liberal arts. But I've also hired some people that were college dropouts that made it about a year and they said, you know what, this isn't for me. I've got to, I got to be making things with my hands. Um, and so they, they went out, got a job in an agency, worked with a bunch of clients, worked really hard um, and learned on the job. And that's okay too. It's, it's, a, it's a different way of coming to an understanding of what you're doing. But I don't think it's, I don't think it's wrong. I don't think one is better than the other. I think that, you know, what Jared's suggesting is a balance, essentially, is that if you're entirely academic, but you have not actually practiced or applied those ivory tower ideas, you haven't applied those to something practical, then, you know, is that very useful? Converse, if, you're, if you only know the tools of the trade, can you think very deeply about the meaning of the product and the strategy? Can you think very high level? Maybe not. 
So, you know, a balance between those two puts you in a really strong position to be a leader in design and, you know, technology versus, you know, just a technician. Right. And you, you mentioned hiring there and you've done quite a, quite a bit of that in your time at MailChimp as you grew that team. And I'm curious, a lot of our listeners are from more early stage startups where they're hiring just their few first few designers. And while you have all these resume line items that look great or in the early days, people skills and chemistry are so important. So what are those those qualities beyond the the resume page that you would look for in young designers? Yeah, I, I wrote about this uh, post a while back. Uh, it's called "Hire People, Not Skills." Um, and you know, typically the way that that we do hiring um, in so many different businesses is we set you know list out these are the skills you need to have to be able to do this job. But just just stop for a minute and think of if you've fired a person or you've known people in your organization that have been fired, was it because their HTML wasn't good or, you know, their designs weren't up to par? Maybe, but most of the time it's the soft skills that get people booted. So when we're hiring, we need to really focus on the soft skills. Like how well does someone communicate? How do they collaborate with other people? Are they adaptable or do they have to have things just so to feel like they can do good work? And we could investigate these soft skills by spending time, by basically making time with people to, to learn more about who they are as a person. You know, learning about, you know, what their interests are, you know, if they've got side projects that, that are interesting, how they're jumping into these side projects and solving problems. You know, there's, there's some folks I've interviewed who they're working on a side project, not because anyone asked it of them. They were doing it nights and weekends, which showed, okay, this is a person with passion, they didn't have the right things to be able to build what they wanted. You know, they were, you know, figuring out solutions in a Mm -hmm. creative way. And that stuff is really compelling to me. I would hire off of that versus a resume any day. So, and, you know, a lot of times I would spend an entire day with a person, getting them in front of lots of different people, making time for them to hang out over coffee or lunch because it's really hard to fake your way through a day's worth of conversations, but you can fake your way through like a 30 minute or an hour interview and, and really put your best foot forward. Um, so yeah, time, time is definitely an important part of the hiring process. A lot of those soft skills that you mentioned, I think fit really in really well with a trend that we're seeing with companies as they begin to scale their um, design programs. And that's that they're embedding these designers alongside engineers and product managers on the actual product teams rather than sort of the classic quote unquote, design team. Yeah. So you're going to need those soft skills, obviously, to communicate better with those people and really um, show them the value of those smaller details that may may be overlooked. How can designers in these settings help get that message across that not to undervalue or overlook those smaller details and not feel like they're in isolation there? Yeah. So I think that there, there definitely are some challenges with cross-functional teams. I think they're good on so many levels that uh, helps us understand our colleagues and their their medium, uh, their their domain better, which creates empathy and that creates respect. And I'm a big believer that organizational design is heavily influences product design. That if you've got the wrong organizational design for the time, the stage that you are in your company, it's really hard to make your best work. But you know, situations where designers are solo in a cross functional team where they're outnumbered by engineers by like six to one. You know, it's going to be a tall order to convince anyone, even if you're a great communicator and you're humble and collaborative, you know, it's just, it's puts you in, at a great disadvantage. So 
it's better if we can design those situations, structure our team so designers are never on an island on their own. That either they have at least one other designer working with them on, on that project, or if resources are thin, you can have a designer who's, who's paired designing, might be on a different team, but works with you like eight hours a week. Because you know, you're working as, as a designer on a problem and you can get stuck. And then you can just end up spinning your wheels because you're, you're not getting feedback. And feedback is the lifeblood of a healthy design team and design practice. Designers who are on their own, they feel like you know, their careers stagnate, they're, they're not growing. Ask any designer what they want in their dream job. They don't say like, I want $50,000 more per year. Uh, I want better healthcare. They don't say that. They right. say, I want a place where I can grow, where I can learn and I can grow. And if you're the only designer on a team, you're just not going to get that. You're just not going to grow and you're, you're going to have, you know, the company's going to have a churn problem, turnover where people are going to leave looking for a, a, a more healthy situation. So I think that uh, not putting designers on an island is important. I think that it is an opportunity and designers should see that as an opportunity to learn from other folks. Having a, a, a strong set of values that guide design so it, it doesn't feel like, okay, we're changing the color of this button again. Why, why is this meaningful? Because designers can, can get caught noodling. You know, mm-hmm. uh, This is another problem. If you're left to your own devices for, for too long, you lose track of what's really meaningful. And so having design values, we see this in, in a number of companies. They're coming up with design systems that are not just about you know, design patterns and what a buttons and forms look like, but also why do we do this? IBM, we'll use them as an example again. They've got uh, a design system they've been working on that draws upon the history of the company and the brand and you know, the way that they animate relates to the machines from the 60s and the 70s. And you know, there's this rich history that's embedded in the design concepts that they're producing. So that can help a designer greatly so they can stop talking just about style and start talking about the values. Because if a designer is isolated like that, engineers have certain values, very quantitative values of like how many bugs were produced in this last release. Mm-hmm. What's, the, what's the time to ship? These are not necessarily the values that should guide design. Design is qualitative. So designers need those values to guide them. Yeah, and I think that becomes almost in a compounding way more and more critical as you scale because it becomes harder to maintain your your vision and, for, and mission for design as the company grows and you have to navigate all these new business hurdles with more and more people coming into the fold, more decision yeah. makers. So as someone who's ridden that growth curve before, early stage design team leaders, what can they be doing ahead of time to help prepare for those challenges? I think that... You know, it's it's about recognizing where you are and how things will change. That you know, when you're in at early stage, you will tend to hire for you know diverse set of skills, someone that 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 can do a lot of things, but they're not necessarily a specialist because you know you you don't have a, very many people on staff, and we've got to get all these things done. So versatility is advantageous early on. The Swiss Army knife. Yeah, but but as you grow, there's got to be a transition and those versatile people start to specialize and find specific pockets where they can contribute to to the, the company or the team. And then hiring shifts too, that you need to hire more specialists. So knowing early on that you're going to have your values for hiring and how you'll organize the team will change. 
That's important. Um, I think that recognizing that your current team structure should work for now, it doesn't have to work for perpetuity. In fact, it should change. So cross-functional teams might not work for all stages. You know, early on, it might be best to have design separate from engineering. But as you grow, maybe it needs to be more decentralized. Um, So it's about recognizing, you know, the size of the company, where the product is, how mature the product is, all of these things, they need to be considered along the way. Just before we continue with today's episode, I wanted to let you know about Offscript. It's a new series of candid conversations with intercom leadership all about the extraordinary AI-driven transformation we're currently experiencing. Episode one is on our YouTube channel right now. Here's a teaser of what you can expect. I don't want to come across as overly dramatic, but for every single tech company, this is an adapt or die moment. It's inevitable that all businesses are going to go AI first. It's just a matter of time. In this post-AI world, new companies will rise, old companies will fall. Of course, some of these new companies will flame out. Some old companies will pivot successfully too. I don't think any of us could see a world where this wasn't going to be one of the biggest changes in the customer service landscape ever. The world we care about is customer service, and it's so patently obvious that the old way will be quickly obsolete. We're racing hard to build a future which will result in better experiences and results for customers and businesses too. It's not just a product change, it's a mindset change. Let's make space to talk about all of this. We have so much we want to share. We want to explore these ideas in the open. We want to provoke new ones in you. We want to learn from your reaction. You just click the kind of like big stupid go button, right? And see what happens. Welcome to Offscript. That's all to come on Offscript. The first episode is out now. You can watch it on Intercom's YouTube channel and we'll bring you audio versions of the episodes right here. Now, back to today's episode. One thing I know that you preach to consider all the way is this idea of, of designing for empathy. And it always matters, but it's there are different challenges facing you depending on where you are on that growth scale, as we talked about, when it comes to designing for empathy. So, you know, in the early days, it's it's about speed and, and getting your product out. And maybe you overlook research or in, in the later stages, it's the just the amount of, of insulation that designers might have. So how do you break out of that bubble and experience the stress of, of real users early on and, and then maintain that as part of your culture? I think it's just a matter of stating clearly that this is a value to us, that you know, recognizing that if we optimize for speed at the beginning of, of a product and we spend a lot of time and resources making a thing and we ship it, and the first impression with customers is negative because we didn't stop and research the market, actually talk to our potential customers to basically consider the problem, look at the problem from all angles. If you do that, you you lose that first impression opportunity. Maybe people will come back. Will people download a mobile app again? Probably not. Like if it wasn't right out of the gate, they're not coming back to you. So we optimize for speed often in the wrong place. We need to take some time up front to really understand the problem, understand the customers, understand the market, and design and build accordingly. So you know, how do we, how do we break out of this, this pattern of saying like, we don't have time for research. Look, if you don't have time to talk to your customers, you don't have time for success. If you don't know your customers, you, you, there's no way you can actually solve the problem. So it's got to come from the top, you know, that, that leaders have to say, this is important for us. Uh, we're going to invest in this. 
And in terms of, you know, designing for empathy and, you know, human connection, this is something that's very familiar in architecture, industrial design, graphic design, you know, all, all these disciplines that have been around for a long time. They recognize that they're designing not just to be functional, but to be pleasing and attractive and meaningful. And we have hundreds of years of, of experience with these mediums where, where we see this value. You know, if we look at you know, just automotive design, for example, like a, a Honda Fit, it's a very practical, simple car. It's economic, gets good gas mileage. You right. can do a lot with it. It's $15,000. Uh, a Lexus RX is $64,000. It's four times as much money. But it basically does the same thing as a Honda Fit. Why do we spend four times as much money? Because we feel this sense of status and luxury. And, and that's, you know, there's, there's all sorts of emotional reasons why we would make that purchase decision versus buying the Honda Fit. So we know this from other disciplines and software. We're not dealing with material goods, but we are dealing with the experience, creating a user experience that's not just about, I got my work done, but did that feel good to get my work done? Do I want to go back here? Do I want to tell friends about this? You know, all of these things are really powerful if we stop and, and carefully consider connecting with emotion, not just, you know, the quantitative things. And when you talk about how it, it's crazy not to prioritize this stuff early, is part of the problem this fail fast mantra that's kind of taken over the software industry? I mean, I'm not a huge fan of that idea of like <laughs> the surest way to fail fast is to not talk to your customers or investigate the market or, you know, put yourself in their shoes that, you know, the idea, it's really just a phrase that's misinterpreted. It's about right. learning fast, right? It's, it's about making things and trying things without the fear of doing it wrong. And that's, I think, is, is good to a certain degree, but if it leads us to optimize in the wrong place, you know, where we get speed early on, we really, we need speed at the end. We need to design and build faster, but take more time to solve the problem. A friend of mine, Laura Martini, I think she, she summed it up so succinctly in this simple quote. She said, you win a race at the finish line, not at the starting blocks. And fail fast to me, it's often interpreted in the valley in our industry about, you know, being fast out of the gate, which is dangerous. So speaking of, of empathy, that's a big part of a book that you put out about five years ago, but it's hard to believe Designing for Emotion, October 2011. It's been, been out for a while now. If you, were, if you were to go back today and say release a second edition, what needs to be said or covered that wasn't then? What would you accentuate more? Uh, you know, I feel like designing for emotion, just just the idea of, of thinking about that, of thinking from the customer's perspective, um, identifying the emotional context of the moment, all that stuff to me is evergreen. What's not evergreen is the examples of, of how that's changing our industry. We definitely see that happening more, especially, you know, to bring our conversation full circle as design rises to the top in our industry as not a nice-to-have thing. We're not decorating. It's this essential part of the user experience. You know, I, I see a lot more examples of designing for emotion in our industry these days. So I don't think that that the, the concepts are, are necessarily off. It's just, a, you know, a matter of finding ways to change our mindset and how our teams work and where we make space for this. So one, one place I'd be curious to get your take on there that has evolved a lot since you uh, you put out that book is this uh, this whole rise of conversational design and, and chatbots. And 
I think the problem with trends like this, because so many of these these chatbot experiences fall so flat, is that creators lose sight of that empathy in a way where they just have the the urge to implement this new thing rather than actually stepping back and asking, does this make it more useful or quicker or or easier to my users and to to relate to their uh, needs? How can or should the idea of designing for empathy or emotion be applied in, in this area? The one one thing that that I see with chatbots, I I think it's it's really interesting for a number of reasons. Uh, you know, if you're interacting via SMS, for example, the fact that you don't have to log in is huge. Like just to have persistent connection to data or a service, that's really compelling and exciting. But when you see the uncanny valley of a chatbot, is to me where that you know designing for emotion part breaks that. Um, if a chatbot is trying so desperately to emulate the human experience, but we see that it's just a bot, that it's fake, like it just said the same thing to me two times over, that feels really weird and creepy, like it's human, but it's not human. I'd almost rather that the chatbot be more transparently bot-like, you know, to be succinct and, and not try to inject so much flourish to, to give the perception that it's human. Right, right. You sort of get stuck in this this middle ground. And when you're dealing with so many different types of products in that realm, whether it's a chatbot affiliated with healthcare or movie rental, I mean, those are two different types of sets of emotions and feelings that a user might have. Yeah. To me, the, the exciting part of chatbots is not the conversational piece because that's actually pretty clunky. It can be. It's just that the service, it becomes so succinct and so accessible all the time. So looking forward a bit beyond sort of the latest trends and, and what's next, I think it's fair to say that it's a pretty excellent time to be a product designer. But there's also a lot of pressure. I mean, has experience design really become the make or break differentiator to you for new products or services entering a competitive marketplace? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, experience is everything because, you know, at this point, it's so easy to spin up servers and build on frameworks and make, you know, make a good product. Uh, that does a lot of things. But if it doesn't do those things well, if it doesn't do those things in a way that is easy, uh, is enjoyable, um, just like feels good, it's hard to stand out in the market because everyone has access to all of these tools. It's easy to make something that's good. It's still really hard to make something that's great. Aaron Walter, I think we'll uh, we'll leave it there for our listeners. Where can they find more of your work? You can learn more at AaronWalter.com. That's uh, two A's and two R's because my dad misspelled my name at the hospital. Um, and then, of course, I'm just Aaron on Twitter. Well, thanks again for uh, joining us today, and uh, we'll catch up with you soon. My pleasure. Take care. You've been listening to the Inside Intercom podcast. For more episodes, visit SoundCloud.com slash Intercom. If you'd like to subscribe, search for Inside Intercom in iTunes or Stitcher. And for even more great content, check out blog.intercom.com.